Sometimes life's really big events can turn on the smallest of hinges. Sometimes really big world-changing events can, can turn on a dime. Something that's going to influence the world hugely is, is a result of some random act that is really quite tiny and, and seemingly insignificant. The story goes that back in the 1930s in New York City, there was a portly Englishman wandering through the streets of New York late at night and was hit by a taxi cab. Historians often wonder how history would have gone if that Englishman, if that portly Englishman out late at night in New York City hadn't have simply suffered injuries but had have died, that Englishman's name was Winston Churchill. What would have happened if something, that driver is a little bit different here or there? There's many examples down throughout history. A wonderful example I read of last week included uh, Annie Oakley, the sharpshooter, uh, who would shoot out a, a cigarette out of a a victim, a person, a volunteer's mouth, wondering how things would have gone differently if she had have uh, just aimed slightly differently at very famous people's heads. Just an inch or two there, a degree or two here, might have meant a huge change down the line in, in human history. And today's uh, story from Exodus chapter 2 is, is one of those events, a very influential moment in in history that frankly could have gone either way was, was touch and go, involving that most fragile, that most helpless of beings, that is a baby human being, an, an infant human being. Today's reading is about the story of, of the birth of, of Moses, who would go on to, to free his people, to to liberate his people, to be one of the most influential people in, in all of, of history. It's a story about how God can use anybody to achieve great things, to be a part of, of his kingdom. It's a lesson I think that we all need to be reminded of still here in, in Sydney in 2023, that God can achieve great things through you and through I. Last week we had... Two heroes, two midwives being the heroes of the story. And here again today in Exodus chapter 2, again, it's, it's girl power. It's women to the rescue. And not just two, there's three women that come to the rescue in the first 10 verses of Exodus chapter, chapter 2. Three very different women. Three very different women, different ages, different social standing, different nationalities, different ethnicities are used by God for his glory. Uh, one of these women wasn't even a member of God's people, was a member of the oppressing Egyptian ruling class, but God uses her to make sure that he can liberate his people and eventually, of course, bring about in the fullness of time a saviour who would save all people, liberate all people, bring all people home to their heavenly home um, with God uh, for all who call on his name. But let's have a look at, at Exodus chapter 2. We're going to be reading the first 10 verses. Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through to 10, uh, says this. Now, a man uh, from the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and 
coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Friends, let's pray. God of grace, this is a well-known story for many of us. We pray that you might help us to see something new there, if that is the case. Father, regardless of whether we're approaching this story for the first time or Again, for we've, we've read it many times, Father. We do pray that you will open our eyes to see your truths from it. We pray that my words might be your words. We pray that I might decrease and you increase in all that is said and in all that is heard. In Jesus' name, the people said, Amen. Well, three women. The first woman that uh, God uses here is Moses' mother, of course. Uh, Abraham Lincoln said, No man is poor who has a godly mother. No man is poor who has a godly mother. And what a a godly mother Moses uh, had. We see right there at the beginning in verse 1, there's a couple of things I want you to see. Right at the top of verse 1, we see uh, that they're from the tribe of Levi. This is significant because the tribe of Levi would go on to become the priestly tribe of the 12 tribes. The 11 tribes were all given a piece of land, the promised land, but the Levites went on to become the the priestly tribe cast the priestly line for for all of Israel. Moses, of course, would go on to be an an intercessor between God and his people. If you you know the story, of course, he's the man, the go-between between the Hebrew people and God. So it's appropriate that he is born into the tribe of, of Levi, uh, we were out last night seeing Joseph and his amazing Technicolor dream coat. Jacob and his 12 sons. You know the story? You know the song? Jacob, Jacob and sons. Uh, 12 brothers. Levi is the one from which uh, these, uh, these, this couple came. And uh, his older brother Aaron is actually the first priest. But it's appropriate that Moses is, is from the tribe of Levi, the, 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 the tribe that will go on to become a, a priestly tribe. Uh, by the way, I'm not your priest, just so that a bit of a sidebar, quite often out in the world I, I get called a pizza priest, no, no, and it makes me cringe a little bit inside because I want you to know that you don't need me to get to God, amen? We have one great intercessor, and that is Jesus Christ himself, one great high priest. I'm a minister. The word means servant, and yes, I'm given uh, responsibilities in God's church, but I'm called to be more of a shepherd. You don't need to get to God through me. But back in the day, there was a priestly caste, a priestly line, and 
and they are from the tribe of Levi. The other thing that I want you to see right there in verse 1 is simply the fact that they're not even named. Who are they? They're just a man from the tribe of Levi and a Levite woman. They're not even named. These are regular people, regular Joes. No one's special. These are ordinary folk. I love that. I love that. Later on in the book of Exodus, uh, they are named. But here in chapter 2, when they're introduced, they're not even named. Just a man and a woman. Their parents, Israel's greatest hero, they're just, just a man and a woman. Have a, have a, have a son. In, in verse 2, we're reminded that having a son, however, at this time, came with a, a weighty decision to make. Last week we learnt that Pharaoh is trying to kill off the Hebrew people. He's enslaved them. He's tried to kill them off by putting them to hard labour, by making bricks. Something, by the way, that we have good archaeological evidence for. There's Egyptian sort of pictographs uh, showing uh, two slave masters whipping slaves and making bricks with the caption being, uh, work hard without fainting. So this isn't without uh, archaeological evidence. Evidence. God's people, the Hebrews, have multiplied and they're filling the land and Hebrew and, and Pharaoh is afraid. So he's trying to, trying to kill them off. He, he commands last week the midwives to throw every male Hebrew baby to, to kill it. It didn't work. They kept on multiplying. So the, we left last week with a command from Pharaoh to all of the people, to everyone in Egypt. When you see a Hebrew male baby kill it, throw it into the River Nile. And so they have a terrible decision to make. You can imagine the anguish of a couple of parents. They kept him hidden for three months, but as any parent knows, it's very hard to keep a, a, baby, a baby quiet. Eventually, something had to give. If Pharaoh was like any other tyrant down through history, disobeying his direct edict would have meant endangering your entire family. And if he's like any other tyrant in history, you weren't even really even able to trust your own neighbours or your friends or indeed your families. There are informants everywhere. So something had to give. So in an act of tremendous sacrifice, in an act of tremendous letting go, in an act of tremendous faithfulness, she lets her son go. She constructs a little basket out of papyrus reeds, coats it in tar and pitch and and places her son in it and pushes it out into the Nile. You can imagine she would have done so with great fear and trembling, very prayerful. It would have been the hardest thing that she's ever had to do. But she acknowledges that she can no longer care for the child, so she lets him go. She's no longer in control of this situation. Do you, sometimes, do you like being in control? Let me ask. Do you like being in control? Because I sure do. <laughs> I love being in control. I like having everything in its place. But turn to your neighbour and say, you're not in control. God is in control. In my life, it's proven to be the case over and over again. When I think I'm in control, God has other ideas. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 9 says this, says, the heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. The heart of a man plans the way, but God establishes it. We can make our own plans, but ultimately God is in charge. Ultimately, we need to let go and indeed let God. This is, I think, one of the 
first little takeaways for us this morning. What do you need to let go of? What do you need to hand over to God and, and let go? Maybe even something very precious, something incredibly precious to you and say, Heavenly Father, I, I can no longer deal with this. I can no longer handle this. I, I, I need you to take control, take the steering wheel, take charge of this situation. It may even be regarding... Your children, at the moment, of course, we've had uh, parents sending their kids off to school for the first time, to high school, to university, in my case, to international mission. I'm assuming our son in Hawaii is still alive. I haven't heard from him for a, a few days, but I'm just entering that phase of parenthood where we're learning to let go of our adult children and, and learning that what all parents, I think, must ultimately have to come to, that our children are only ever on loan from God that ultimately we need to let them go. It might not be your children. It might be something else. What is that you need to be brave like Moses' mother and, and give over to God? She's in, in, incredibly, incredibly brave. She's incredibly courageous for taking this, this step of faith. She was incredibly brave for keeping the child as long as she did. She's disobeying Pharaoh's direct command. This is the second great, we heard the first one last week, the second great act of civil disobedience, of disobeying an ungodly king who was issuing ungodly and evil edicts to, to take life rather than to preserve it. But she expressed her faith firstly by keeping the son and then secondly actually by, by, letting, him, by letting him go. Some scholars, by the way, believe uh, I wasn't aware of this, but some scholars actually believe there was a bit of a plan afoot, that Moses' mother actually knew what she was doing at this point. It's only a theory, we can't be sure, but reading between the lines, they suggest that she pushed the child out into the River Nile at the time when she knew Pharaoh's daughter would be downstream, taking her daily ritual bath, and actually used her daughter Miriam to be the broker. I actually quite like that theory. There's not a lot of evidence from the text there, but it is an interesting theory. So she might not have only have been terribly courageous, she might have been uh, quite canny as well. But she is, at the very least, incredibly selfless. This is an act of incredible sacrifice from this mother. Of course, we could do a whole sermon series on godly mothers in the Bible letting go of their sons. We could talk about Hannah and Samuel or the woman that handed her, let her baby go before King Solomon rather than having the baby cut in half. Or, of course, Mary uh, herself, the mother of Jesus, at, at the foot of the cross. As I said, I'm only just entering this period of adulthood myself. Some of you further down the road might be able to teach me a thing or two, but ultimately our children are only ever on loan from God. So whether it is your children or, or perhaps something else in your life, what is it that you need to let go of and be brave and acknowledge that God is ultimately in charge of this week and this year? The second interesting woman in this story, the other interesting here, the second lady is in fact uh, Moses' older sister, Miriam. Now again, she's not named in the text. It might actually not be Miriam. If she might have had an, he might have had another older sister that we're not aware of. But certainly, uh, Miriam is a hero in her own right. Miriam will go on to be a leader of Hebrew women. She will go on to be a worship leader. And this young lady is incredibly courageous at this point in the story too. She's probably only a child, not old enough to raise any suspicion about why she isn't out in the fields working or making bricks, but old enough to certainly have an adult conversation, 
to, to carry on a conversation with and out of it. And that's what I'm impressed about by Miriam at, at, at this point. She takes responsibility. She actually is willing to, to, to go and be a part of, of whatever plan possibly that a mother has, has hatched. Again, we don't know. She could have just been following along her baby brother off her own bat. We're not really sure. But either way, uh, God, God uses this, this young lady, this, this young girl, and she, she takes responsibility for her baby brother. There's so much... More of this we need in our society today, to be taking responsibility for those around us. We need our, our young people to be growing up, to be taking responsibility. There's not enough of it happening in, in modern Australia. Our, our, our young men, I pick on the men because I'm one of them, because I see them all the time. Our young men grow up and they turn into this man-child, man boys who shave. They're grown physically, but they just don't take responsibility for anything. They don't take responsibility for themselves, they don't take responsibility for their family, for their tribe, for their society, for their neighbourhood or, or for their nation. And far too often, children aren't given any responsibility or the, the children are simply able to do whatever it is they want without mum and dad giving any guidance. It is a struggle of being a minister now, what, some 17 years, and I have noticed that little children end up actually making decisions for their family. We haven't seen you guys for a few years. Where have you been? Oh, little Timmy doesn't like coming to church anymore. But little Timmy's seven years old. Little Timmy doesn't get to make decisions for your family. Little Timmy needs a boot up the backside, quite frankly. And little Timmy, little Timmy doesn't get to make decisions. Little Timmy needs to be given some responsibility and taught that the world doesn't revolve around him. That's what I love about Miriam here. She's actually taking some sort of responsibility and, and, uh, and engaging uh, in, in, a, in an articulate manner um, with grown-ups. I love those kids that I try to instruct my kids to sort of to look an adult in the eye, to, to shake their hand. Miriam has actually obviously been um, parented well here, so I, I love that. But again, only a young girl. Again, God can use anybody. The third uh, wonderful woman, the third wonderful hero of this story is Pharaoh's daughter, who ends up being Moses' adoptive mother. The story goes that she hears his cry. She opens up the basket and sees the baby crying, and her heart melts. One commentator says that God brought together two wonderful things, a baby's cry and a woman's heart. There's an old Egyptian sort of wives' tale, an old Jewish sort of tale that an angel actually pinched baby Moses right at the right time and, and made him cry. Um, that's just folklore, but the story goes that she hears his cry and her heart goes out to him. It's significant that Moses' story is one of adoption. Uh, adoption has always been a, a key part of, of the Christian story. Remembering Jesus himself um, was, of course, adopted by an, an, earthly, an earthly father. It's also a wonderful example of the universalism of morality. It's a wonderful story to us that morality transcends ethnicity. Okay, I don't think we really need to harp on this here at church in the marketplace, but I think, do think every once in a while it's important to remind ourselves that no tribe or tongue has a, has a mortgage on on morality. Morality isn't bound by ethnicity. All humans, every part, every 
branch of the human family tree are capable of, of, of being moral and are indeed called to do so. We don't know what sort of risks this lady was taking by bringing a Hebrew child into the palace. I mean, did her father even know? We're not really sure. Did she keep it from him? Did he know about it and say, well, we'll raise him as an Egyptian, one less Hebrew to worry about? Again, we can only speculate. But either way, this is a, a wonderfully compassionate act by, by a, a foreigner. She had, she had no reason to, to do so. She's part of the royal family of a race that is persecuting another, that is that has enslaved another, but she takes pity on a child. She cares for a helpless human baby. She, you've heard of the parable of the Good Samaritan, the hated foreigner that is the hero of Jesus' story. Well, this is the story of the good Egyptian. It is a theme that will be repeated again and again throughout Scripture of a foreigner being used by God, of a foreigner being the hero of of the story. Another little thing you might not have seen is that Moses being brought up by Pharaoh's daughter meant that he would have received an, an education. Uh, parts of the New Testament talks about this episode. Acts chapter 7, verse 22 talks about this. Moses says, Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. The Egyptians were a very advanced society. Sometimes we moderns look back on the ancients, very sort of paternalistic, sort of patronizing manner, thinking they were stupid. The ancient Egyptians knew the earth was round. The ancient Egyptians calculated the distance from the earth to the sun and did so relatively accurately. These were learned, educated people. So again, God is working through this process. Young Moses is raised in an environment where he's receiving the skills and the knowledge that he will later need. Of course, Miriam is used to bring his mother back into the picture, and she, her faithfulness is now paying off. She's reunited with her son and is able to, to tell her son who he really is. So Moses receives the best of both worlds. He's told who he truly is as a, as a Hebrew, as well as receiving all the power and privilege of being raised in, in the palace. So I think the takeaway uh, from these three women is, is fairly clear. God can use anyone. For some of us, I think it seems like, well, God makes a difference through other people, but not through me. God works through those sort of amazing people who stand up the front of churches. Can I tell you, if you think like that, you are sorely mistaken. I'm just a punk from the Hills District of Sydney, right? Sometimes I still wake up in that moment and I'm waking up, where am I, what am I, I'm a minister? How did that happen? They put me in charge of a church? People who stand up the front of a church or have responsibilities in a church are just like you. They're just giving it a go. They're trying to use whatever God has given them for his glory. Don't think it's something that other people do. For other people, of course, think, well, it's, it's something that I used to do. I was quite involved, but not so much anymore. Can I encourage you, even if you can pray, even if you can just pray, and I understand there are times and seasons in a person's life. 
And sometimes God might be calling you to lay something down. But even if you can be a prayer warrior for this church, we'll be greatly appreciated if you could take up your role of being simply a prayer warrior for this church. Others still, I think, come to me and say, well, yes, I will, but in a few years, Peter, I'm not quite ready. I'll take up this job. I'll, I'll do something for God when I'm ready. Again, can I tell you, you're never going to be ready. Now is the time to act for God. Now is the time to take up a responsibility. Miriam is, is but a child, and she was used miraculously by God. God wants to use you. God wants to use you now to protect life, to move his kingdom forward. For example, right here at church in the marketplace, we've been waiting on God and discerning for a little while about how we're going to serve the people of Bondi Junction. We've got some wonderful international mission foci. We, we, we send teams to Fiji and, 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 to, and to India, but here locally, we, we need to be doing more. What's God put on, on your heart? I'd love to hear from you if you've got a, a ministry idea, if you're passionate about something, you're wanting to put your shoulder to the wheel about how we can bless and serve the people here in the, in the eastern suburbs of greater Sydney. People have been considering whether or not we could start up an English second language class again. It's something that I know this church has had some history with. Maybe there's a new season looking to start in that avenue again. Maybe it's, it's time for a bit of a homework club or some youth work or some, some children's ministry. What is it that, that God is calling you to put your shoulder to the wheel and to use by him for his glory? This story also tells us that all of our labours for God are not in vain, even when we can't see where they're heading. I take a lot of comfort from this. Think about it. These three women couldn't possibly have known where God was taking this story. They simply were able to care for this child that God had put in front of them. And God indeed worked through them in ways that they could never possibly have imagined. Note too that there's an irony in this story that Pharaoh wanted the Nile to be the great killer, the eliminator of the Hebrew people, but in fact Pharaoh's daughter draws him out, draws Moses out of the Nile. The Nile actually is a, is a giver of life. This, is, this starts a motif that runs right through Exodus of Moses being associated with, with water. Whereas Pharaoh is associated with stone, which is seemingly permanent, seemingly immovable, Moses is allied with water, which although chaotic, is movable and malleable and, and adaptable. Where do you need to be slightly adaptable in, in 2023? You've heard of the butterfly effect where scientists sort of hypothesize that maybe a butterfly flapping its wings in the Amazon basin can cause a chain reaction that ends up causing a hurricane on some other, in some other part of the planet. Well, this is the bulrushes effect, this story. Little child plucked from the bulrushes of the Nile has a great impact in world history. Moses will indeed grow up to liberate his people, to free his people. And I want to leave you with a little observation that you might not have been aware of in this story. When the Hebrew here talks about a basket, how his mother fashioned a basket 
It's the same word that's used back in Genesis chapters 6 to 8 to talk about an ark. A giant boat back in Genesis 6 to 8 saves eight human lives and a whole bunch of animals, but here in Exodus chapter 2, another ark is used by God to bring salvation, this time carrying only a single human infant. This is how God works. This is how God worked in Jesus Christ, of course. Think of the parallels between Moses and Jesus. Jesus was also born under the threat of death, wasn't he, with the slaughter of the the male babies at Bethlehem at the time. Jesus was also adopted into an, an earthly family. Jesus and his parents were forced, ironically, to flee to Egypt to escape the persecution. And just as God saved the infant Moses to save his people, so too God saved the infant Jesus to save his people. Whenever, when rescue looked impossible, when the king's power looked insurmountable, God used ordinary, everyday folk, ordinary people, everyday folk, because he had a plan that could not be thwarted. Over a thousand years later, he would sacrifice his own son, Jesus of Nazareth, so that he could deliver you and I. God always had a plan through it all, and he can use anyone to carry it out. This is the good news of Jesus Christ that we celebrate. God used the death of the Messiah, his own son, to save us from sin and death. A small hinge that changed history, and I believe it can change your life too. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, give us faith to believe and to trust. Give us faith to act and obey. Whatever small or big things you call us to do, may we know that you have a plan and that you can use even us. In Jesus' name, amen.